Hey, I'm Hannah Alberga. And I'm Catherine DeClerc. And this is Ballot Box, your one-stop shop for everything you need to know about the politics and the drama unfolding on the provincial election campaign trail. This week started off with devastation. A storm ripped through southern and eastern Ontario, killing 10 people, pulling roofs off of homes, displacing families and businesses, and leaving hundreds of thousands of people without power. If you're wondering how this ties into the election, it's because it's happening as political leaders are in the final stretch of their campaign. There's less than a week to go until voters cast their ballots, and naturally, politicians will politic, even if they say it is not about the election. On Monday, Del Duca announced he was suspending his campaign to meet with first responders, families, and businesses in eastern Ontario's Clarence Rockland. While there, he took the opportunity to call out PC leader Doug Ford. You think back to months ago when the illegal occupation was happening on Parliament Hill. You've heard me say this dozens of times. Instead of showing up when it was needed, where it was needed, he chose to go snowmobiling at his cottage. And today, instead of being here, or yesterday, instead of being here... He chose to be off doing a bunch of gimmicky politicking. These strong words definitely did not make it sound like the Liberal leader was suspending his campaign. In fact, it made it appear as though he was using the storm as a stepping stool to talk about climate change and leadership, two big issues in this election. The tactic slightly backfired by mid-afternoon when the PCs added a stop to Ford's agenda for a trip to Uxbridge, one of the areas worst hit by the storm. But it did bring the issue of the environment back into the fold. Ford calls this a once-in-a-lifetime storm, and his opponents took this as an opportunity to attack his climate change plan, which largely focuses on policies with an economic lens. One of the worst examples uh, of pollution, go stand on the bridge of the 401 and watch bumper-to-bumper traffic. That's why we're building roads and bridges and, and highways to get people home quicker. In her reaction, NDP leader Andrea Horvath focused on making disaster relief program funding flow quicker to residents after severe weather events. She also took it as an opportunity to sell her environmental plans to reduce greenhouse gas to net zero by 2050 while expanding the Greenbelt. Meanwhile, the Greens reminded voters of their plans to reach net zero five years sooner while doubling the size of the Greenbelt. on a couple of topics we chatted about last week. First, Horvath and Schreiner were back on the in-person campaign trail this week after both testing positive for COVID-19. To make up for physical time lost, they kept up to speed on a remote basis until they were in the clear to get back out on the streets. I'm very lucky. My symptoms have been very mild. And so I've been able to continue campaigning uh, from my living room. And we've done a ton of events. And I've been making lots of phone calls over the last few days and looking forward to being back in person starting tomorrow. Also, if you remember Ford's front runner strategy we dove into last week, the one where he ducks media questions and declines interview requests. The idea is if he stays on cruise control, he can keep his place in the lead. Now it appears other PC candidates are using similar strategies. Liberal candidates have started speaking out after noticing PC candidates ditching local debates. He said that um, you know he wanted to focus on other parts of the riding where there were undecided voters. And I just think that was presumptuous of him to think that he's got the votes in Lawrence Park and the surrounding area. People were disappointed. 
A Liberal spokesperson told CTV News Toronto that they're estimating at least 60 PC candidates have been absent for local debates so far. This isn't a particularly new problem. PC candidates have historically not showed up for many local riding debates and instead tend to focus their efforts on door knocking. Toronto voters may want to either plan ahead or vote in advance. At least one downtown riding is going to have significantly less polling stations than in 2018. Elections Ontario confirmed there will be 29 voting stations in the riding of Spadina, Fort York. In 2018, that number was 116. The decision to cut down the number of polling stations was made for the last federal election due to COVID-19. While voters were able to avoid smaller crowded halls, it did cause long lineups and lots of frustration. However, Elections Ontario says that voting will actually be faster at these larger stations because they are equipped with more technology that will allow for easier voter tabulation. Let's talk money. While promising big plans for highways, cheaper transit, tax freezes, and more OHIP coverage is all great, if you can't lay out how you're going to afford it, what does it all really mean? The PCs are relying on their 2022 budget as an indicator of where they stand, and there are some holes, especially when it comes to Highway 413. The party has pledged to cut multiple taxes, offering a tax credit for those traveling within the province. The only changes to taxpayers would be the non-residential speculation tax, which was increased 20% province-wide in March. Any other funding for these promises would have to come from cuts elsewhere. In order to pay for their promises, the NDP would raise income taxes 1% for individuals earning more than $220,000 a year. Those earning more than $300,000 a year would see it go up by 2%. They would also repeal the PC's six-month gas tax, introduce a vacancy tax, and add a surtax on luxury vehicles. On our plan, we make it crystal clear that the hardest-hit small businesses during this pandemic will not have to pay any corporate income tax for two full years. The Liberals would increase taxes on individuals with incomes of more than $500,000 to 15.6%, and would introduce a 1% surtax on corporate profits about $1 billion. Meanwhile, the Greens would tax homeowners and corporations with more than two properties, implement a vacancy home tax and an anti-flipping tax, and ask the wealthiest Ontarians to pay additional taxes on assets worth more than $10 million. While we're talking about money, a CTV News Toronto investigation revealed where dozens of MPP dollars are spent on property. To learn more about the staggering $36.5 million of real estate owned by candidates running for re-election, as a housing crisis grips this province, we sat down with CTV News Toronto's John Woodward. Tell us about once you actually obtained this information, which obviously was not easy, what you first discovered when you started sifting through documents. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the challenge here is to, is to get the before and after, you know, is to, if we're, well, well, I should say identify the properties and then figure out what they were and they came to. So identifying the properties became a lot harder thanks to a decision by the integrity commissioner to say investment properties, you, you know, 2018, you could know about them. 2021, you can only know the city they are in, which makes it very hard to identify. So it takes a lot of digging 
through public sources to find these properties. Once you have them, we don't have a, uh, a, a, a good, I don't want to say good, that's not the right way. We don't have a comparable public assessment in Ontario as there is in BC. So, so in that case, we enlisted the help of a company called House Sigma, which runs an app that does a lot of, that has data on many home sales in British Columbia. And many of them were in their app. So we could then look and say, okay, cast back uh, 10 years to when the property was purchased. What was its value then? Well, 10 years ago, it would have been a, the average you know, middle-class home. Well, what's its, what's its estimated value today? House Sigma had an estimated uh, system that they built using uh, some artificial intelligence. They could, they could put a number on any given property. And today, it's millions of dollars. So the, the broad picture of this is things that were once affordable middle-class homes are now investments that are worth millions. And somebody once said, money doesn't talk, money screams. This is a, this, if I'm, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who owns millions of dollars of investment property, how can you not be thinking about that when you're making your decisions? And that means, that means the question is, are we doing enough to, to shed light on these properties as, and wondering if, you know, are the, are the people who we are electing to have influence over many of the decisions that are made around our housing market from rental rules to, um, to how the properties are sold, to oversight over zoning in cities, which just determines how dense things are, to also the decision to enact ministerial zoning orders uh, from the province that can override local decisions. Well, how, how clearly are we understanding the financial motivations behind those? And I think that's a really important question because these properties have never been worth as much as they are now. Can you break down for us how many of these MPPs fall into each party? Did any in particular stand out compared to the others? Yeah. So when we finally we got the data, we we're able to put it together and th- we were able to identify 40, 42, I believe, investment properties uh, that were worth a total of $36 million. Uh, that's, that's a number unimaginable a few years ago. Um, but again, $36 million, that's, uh, I think we did the math, is something like you would need thousands of people to donate to your campaign to get that, the, the maximum possible donation to get that amount of money. It's a, it's a significant sum. And uh, of those, the people that really jumped to the top were uh, uh, PC candidate Stan Cho in Willowdale. He has four investment properties. Uh, Dolly Begum in Scarborough Southwest ha- uh, shares with her family a total of four properties that were disclosed as investment properties in different periods of time, though now her, her, her extended family moves in and out. Um, Kathleen Wynn uh, had uh, two properties that uh, were surging in value. Um, and so, you know, uh, oh, here we go. So Stan chose properties. We couldn't value them all because because of the lack of disclosure, but the one, the two we could, $2.3 million. Dolly Begum's were uh, together $4.41 million. Uh, and the biggest one was, um, was a, a Roman Baber, former PP, PC MPP, who's now running for the Conservative Party leadership. Uh, he appeared to have the largest portfolio, three homes, valued together at $5.21 million. And that's $2 million more dollars uh, in those properties on, on paper than uh, they were when he purchased them. So, of course, a number of these MPPs are up for re-election next week. Why is this information relevant now for people to know? 
I think it's an important thing because housing has never been so expensive. How and housing is it's really the job of these people to manage that side of the economy. Uh, I shouldn't say entirely theirs. Obviously, the federal government has a role with interest rates, and the municipal government ha- plays a role with with zoning. But the the provinces really do play center stage. Uh, it, so if you are, you know, voting, uh, it's it's just important to understand where where your candidates' interests may lie. And, and I don't want to impugn their integrity. Obviously, if they're signing up to a party which has a, a goal, a housing platform, they they may wholeheartedly wish to do that. And I don't I don't mean to mean to say just because you have an investment property, you're somehow compromised. But if um, there is a, a property that they own that we may see come up in future decisions, people people should know about that. Uh, Stan Cho's father uh, had a property in the path of the original route of the the Bradford Bypass. And it was moved around his property. The integrity commissioner found that there was no wrongdoing in that particular scenario. But that's the kind of example of whether your um, your parliamentarians have have interests that may come into their work. Uh, but I but I also think that we because of disclosure we limited our analysis here to investment properties. But obviously, people have homes they live in as well. Homes that they uh, they have cottages. They have. Um, Pieta-Terre is in Toronto, especially if they live far away when they're coming here. So all of those properties add up to a lot as well. So we we think that our $36 million figure very likely underestimates the amount of total housing wealth. And just to give you an example of, of that, um, we looked at um, Dolly Begum's two liberal and PC competitors uh, in that riding, and, and both of them appear to live in homes that valued about $2 million each. So, you know, there, there are plenty of, um, plenty of people, plenty of candidates who are renters themselves. I don't think it's always true that you need to find a candidate who exactly matches. But I, I suspect the housing crisis looms much larger in the minds of a candidate who is a renter than someone who owns millions of dollars worth of property. It looks like the gap is widening at a critical time for Doug Ford. That's according to this week's Nanos Research Survey, which suggests that Tories are holding a comfortable advantage among decided voters, leaving the NDP and Liberals racing for second place. According to the polls, 37.3% of respondents said they were planning to cast their ballot with the PCs. That's up from 36.1% last week. That leaves the Liberals with 28%, with the NDP breathing up their necks at 23.2%. The Greens are holding at 6.3%. Now, we've been bringing you the latest polling every week, so we thought it was finally time to introduce you to Nick Nanos, the chief data scientist behind these projections. Before we get into like the, into the data, okay. you must be swamped. You and your team have been working overtime. I imagine uh, how many polls or surveys have your has your team conducted since the writ was issued well actually it's never it's never stopped because as soon as we finish one survey for ctv and cp24 we start the next survey so it's it's basically been uh been a mad dash through the election you know at at the same time of of doing the surveys you know the the journalist journalistic team at at CTV News and the Nanos team have been trying to figure out what's on the minds of people, what should we be polling about, what's interesting, and uh, 
So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's like driving and texting because you should, no one should ever drive and text at the same time, but there's lots of multitasking going on between the CTV and Nanos team, because we're at the same time pushing out surveys to put a spotlight on what's happening in the election and then keeping an eye out for what's the next issue that we need to put a spotlight on in order to uh, engage voters. So as we're nearing the finish line here, you know, what specifically stood out to you about this latest survey? Well, you know, the interesting thing about, about this latest survey, and it was, it was one of the questions that we asked about how optimistic or pessimistic people were, because it's usually like the frame. Are people grumpy? Are they angry? Are they satisfied? And I think the fact that more people were likely to be pessimistic than optimistic about the future in Ontario is actually quite striking. And I'll tell you what the killer, the killer thing was, is that if you happen to be young, like under 35 years of age, you were much more likely to be pessimistic than optimistic. And usually it's the reverse. Young people are optimistic and old people are grumpy and angry. Well, now we've got young Ontarians who are grumpy and angry. But what's surprising is that you would think that this is bad news for the incumbent, in this particular case, Doug Ford. But when you look at his numbers, Doug Ford, if there were an election held at this point in time, would probably win another majority government, which means that even with the pessimism out there, that it has not had a materially negative impact on the political fortunes of the progressive conservatives led by Doug Ford. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And I know that Doug Ford, he, he's been consistently in the lead, but it seems like now it's it's solidifying. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible, like looking at the polling, do you think it's possible for anyone else to catch up? I don't know. I think I think Doug Ford would need to kind of uh, slip on a political banana, swear and probably say something politically incorrect or inappropriate in a public setting, uh, which I don't think all of those things are going to happen at the same time. The, the trend over the course of the election has been relatively consistent to one extent or another. And I think this is because none of the major parties, the major leaders, have made a mistake. Like, usually, you know, usually in an election, there's a car crash of some sort, right? Someone does something stupid. Someone says something stupid. Someone on the campaign does something that's stupid. I go... All of these party leaders are very, very, very disciplined. They're much more disciplined than in other elections. And, you know, we can go back to other provincial elections where, if you remember, Ernie Eves and Kitten Eater, no offense to cats. Uh, if you think of John Tory and his promise on educational funding, Tim Hudak and his numbers, you know, uh, Dalton McGinty. And, uh, you know, at that point, the conservatives were, were describing him as a fibril. But there were all these, there were always these issues that kind of derailed someone. It hasn't happened. So I think that's why we haven't seen swings in, in voter support like we have in past provincial elections. Yeah, so I guess the main race at this moment in time would be for the opposition. Yeah, Hundred percent, hundred percent, and I may, and this is where the drama is going to be because let's face it, twenty eighteen was a great election for Andrea Horvath, right? She did exceptionally well in the leaders' debate. She reinvigorated the New Democrats provincially in Ontario. She got like thirty four percent support. She became the leader of the opposition, 
and they were the main challenger to the Conservatives in 2018. Fast forward now, and Andrea Horvath has not been able to inspire voters to the same extent that she did back in, in, in 2018. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that we, we do seat projections internally every week. One of the interesting things that we know is that the Liberals will get more seats because they just got pummeled in the last election. Like they're at like 20, 20%, right? So now they're at, I think they're at 28%. So they're going to pick up some more seats. Uh, one of the interesting dynamics is that the Liberals... In the seats that they pick up, they will be picking up seats from both the New Democrats and the, cons- and the Progressive Conservatives, which like in the usual universe of political stuff, you'd think that the NDP would be, you know, if the Liberals are up, the NDP are down. Not so much in Ontario in this election because the Liberals, for the seats that they will pick up, they'll pick up from both of the other two major parties. Yeah, and I want to ask you about the issues because we saw like at the beginning, it was all about health care. Yeah. Now with the latest survey, it looks like things have switched a little bit and cost of living is now something that's of a greater concern. Maybe that's why everyone's saying they're pessimistic. Yeah, well, a hundred percent. Think of it this way. You know, people are clutching their chest and their wallet when they fill up their car with gas, right? And, you know, at the beginning and and you know, that's why what we've seen is, is that healthcare has been kind of a consistent issue and an important issue uh, in, the, in the election, at least from the point of view of citizens and voters. But what we have seen is a material increase in the proportion of Ontarians that say they're worried about the cost of living. That's up like seven points from the beginning of the campaign. Or one thing that nobody was talking about at the beginning of the campaign was actually specifically the price of gas. Very few Ontarians would, would say that. And now it's, you know, it might not sound like a lot, but it's, it's 4%. But when you start adding that 4% to the 19% that are worried about the cost of living, and then the people that are worried about jobs in the economy, what you have is basically kind of a, a situation where it's like a, a, a one-two between healthcare and economic issues being the issues that Ontarians are worried about the most that they want to hear from all of the provincial party leaders on. We are just days away from the provincial election, which means this is actually the last episode you'll hear from us before the polls close and the countdown begins. But don't worry, it's not farewell just yet. The day after the election, we will have a fresh episode to break down everything that happened on election night. We do want to remind everyone to cast their ballot on June 2nd. Or if timing is an issue, definitely check out your advanced voting options. If you're still unsure about who to vote for, we have you covered. There is a full platform breakdown of all the key election issues and where each party stands on ctvnewstoronto.ca. Feel free to check it out. So stick with us on this last leg of the journey. Tune in next Friday and don't miss the final episode of Ballot Box, available on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts.